Let me read to you a passage, and I want to pray with you for a second. Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation whom among you appear as lights. Is it possible to sing, God is so good, and yet be a grumbling complainer? Let's pray. Father, I recognize what we're about to step into and the way it will be prickly. And I ask, God, that you would give us your spirit, the ability to interpret and understand this through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would allow your word to speak in such a way that we're willing to adjust our lives accordingly and that we would adapt to the high calling you've placed on us and where we're already adapted, God, that you would take us to the next level. I pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. I can't quite leave the shore of the Red Sea. I know we were there last week, but I got to take you back for just a moment because what you find is God is accomplishing a larger purpose in allowing Israel to be trapped against the sea. It's about peeling back the water for sure, but it's about something more than that. God's going to bring a benefit that people don't even know that they need. So while these individuals can't understand it at the time, and while they're freaking out in terror because all they can see is the disaster of Pharaoh approaching, God has victory in store for them. Let me show you what Dr. Alec Motyer said about this. He did a great job with his book on Exodus. He wrote this in 2003. Had Israel not been caught baffled, terrified, and helpless at the Red Sea, there would have been no final defeat of the power that enslaved them. Now, the power that enslaved them was not just Pharaoh. The power that enslaved them actually was this desire to return to their previous life. We saw this last week. They had this attachment like, let us go back to Egypt. We, we at least knew what was going on there. We don't feel safe here. They would have willingly returned to this life of slavery. But God had so much more waiting for them that they couldn't yet understand. Often, you and I, we are confused why hard issues come into our life. Why does God allow this thing, blank, whatever that blank is? Why now, at this moment, why do I have to have this circumstance? And often, those hard circumstances leave us baffled and they leave us helpless, just like Dr. Motyer referred to. So baffled and so helpless that we're so confused about what God's doing, but we miss what God is demonstrating that once again, He's showing us that He uses those really, really difficult circumstances those trials, not only to refine us, but to deliver us from the thing that trapped us, from the thing that held us in, in order to bring a new horizon our way. In Israel's case, when they're standing at the sea, they had the opportunity to break the power that was over them, that held them in this previous life of bondage. In order for that to happen, God had to allow them to go through a deep trial, 
a really, really hard time. And in the process, he proved to them that he was capable to deliver them. They, in turn, had the opportunity to demonstrate that they really did trust God's word, that they actually believed him. And the end result is verse 31 of chapter 14 where we left off at. Look at this. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. Now they cross the sea and they, they get to the other side. And when they're on the other side, they see this overwhelming redemption that's come their way. They can visibly see the salvation that God has brought to them. There's dead Egyptian soldiers all over the place on the seashore. That's what Scripture says. Verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Check this, especially as this relates to the church. They're saved because they believe the Word of God. They trust the Word of God. They accept God's offer. And as I referred to in the analogy last week, they step down into the waters like we do with the waters of baptism. Paul actually wrote about that very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Watch this, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, here comes the hard stuff. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. As a whole, this new nation has only been born for a few weeks this new nation of people, functionally, were willing to say with their actions, we follow God now. We're going to follow God's path. We're going to trust God. And that action of entering into the water, it absolutely destroyed any possibility of a return to their slave life. They couldn't go back. It had been banished from them. So they're no longer slaves of the past. They've been set free by God Himself, and they're on the other side of the shore, and now they're on their way to Mount Sinai. But before they go to Mount Sinai, Moses breaks out this new top ten hit I was telling you about last week. Look with me on the screen. Chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing, notice who, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and the rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. Now, here's a tip for you. There's always a danger when we begin talking about the attributes of God, and we can very quickly relegate Him to a philosophical discussion as though He's removed and not part of an intimate relationship with us. Notice what Moses has just done here. We should be praising God as Moses just did. Instead of saying, God is so good, how about saying, God, you're so good? That's exactly what Moses did, and that's the way we ended in that song, God, you're so good. He's not only writing about God, but he's saying it to God. Saying, God, this is who you are to me. You're my salvation. And he personally appropriates God. So he's saying to everybody, the Lord is my strength. God is the source of my salvation. He's the one in whom I trust. And after he does that, after he lays down that foundation, then he moves into some detail. Look with me at verse 12. 
You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. And then drop down to verse 18. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. That wasn't an original line that was written by George Frederick Handel when he wrote Handel's Messiah. He's looking back at Exodus and what Moses said. As a matter of fact, John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he says when he's caught up into heaven, before he writes in pen and ink what he saw there, he says, you know what I heard? I heard at the throne of God the song of Moses. I heard those very words. So this song is repeated over and over, and apparently the women of Israel think it's a really catchy tune because they pick it up and they begin repeating the lyrics and the phraseology back, and they're dancing while they do it, and they're playing instruments, verse 20. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And then verse 21, Miriam answered them, sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Did you notice what's going on there? This is a word-for-word repetition of the same things that Moses has just said. She's repeating back. She's echoing what she had just heard. So it appears that everyone is celebrating. Everyone's praising God. They're on the seashore, and they're unified in bringing glory to God. And the whole group comes together. Watch. Verse 1 again. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Compare that to verse 20. Miriam took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. So you got the whole group. Everybody's doing it. And this is the first time Miriam is referred to by name, Moses' sister. All the time up to this point, she's been referred to as the sister. Now we're told exactly who this is. And she's picking up the chorus, and she's doing what's called antiphonal praise. Maybe you're not familiar with this, but I bet you've done it. If you've been on campus to one of the sporting events, perhaps you've been to the Breslin or you go into the Spartan football field, and you hear somebody say, go green, what do you say? You're very enthusiastic with that. (laughs) Do you know what that is? That's antiphonal praise. When it's going back and forth, we're told antiphonal praise takes place in heaven when the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. Angels on the other side go, holy, 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 and return. That's antiphonal praise. That's exactly what Miriam is doing here. That's why it says, literally, she answered Moses, and she repeats the exact same words. So everyone's on the same page, and God's being glorified. And so far, we've seen Israel make this decisive break with the past. No longer slaves, but there's a lot of sanctification that has to take place. God's got to do some work in their hearts. There's going to be some purifying, and that process begins almost as soon as the music stops. Watch. The last chord of the song fades, then comes verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Very likely, the people who have just been led through the Red Sea, they expected to turn north at that point and head to the Promised Land. Because God promised Abraham, God promised Isaac, God promised Jacob, this land that I'm giving to you, this is going to be for your offspring. This is going to be the place where you're going to raise your babies. So very likely, they've gone through what they think is the hard stuff in the Red Sea. They're on the other side praising God, and they're thinking that they might be turning north. Most people would love to go from grace right to glory. Who wouldn't want to be saved and then rescued and turned to heaven? 
But God's purpose is that they're going to enter the wilderness. So ready or not, Israel heads towards Mount Sinai, which is on the other side of the desert called Shur, which is a really desolate region. If you've been in the desert at all, you know what I'm describing here. This particular desert, this wilderness region goes from southern Egypt, just about, midsection of Egypt, all the way up to the northern portion to the southern border of Israel. And it's a massive, massive area. And it's got this very much a desert climate with sparse vegetation. And they need to feed their flocks. And they need to provide for their children. But there's really poor soil. And this is definitely not the place that would support a whole bunch of refugees. So although there's watering holes, the watering holes are like days apart. And Israel soon finds themselves running out of water. they got a serious problem. The most basic human need is for water, and they've run out of water. So you can imagine the distress that they're facing. Three days into the wilderness, and the people are getting desperate. It's pretty hard to go three days without water, especially if you have little children, especially if you have lots of sheep and cows and camels. That's very hard to go a long period of time without that most basic need. And then when they finally get to a place where there's water, they can't drink the water. Chapter 15, verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Sorry if your name is Marah this morning, but it means bitter. <laughs> verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? I've learned when it comes to the Bible that understanding tone is everything. And the tone behind this is not gentle. It's not like, hey, Moses, you know, man, we need some water. You're going to be able to help us with that? No, much more like this tone. Moses, you let us hear. We need water. We're going to die. So they're putting it on him. This is what's going on behind this grumbling here. I'll help you to see that in just a moment. So this is really not hard to picture this at all. They're looking for an oasis, and they finally see an oasis on the horizon. And this first group races to reach the, the oasis. And when they reached it because they're parched, they immediately bend down to drink. They scoop it up into their mouth, and they spit it right back out again. We can't drink this. This is rotten water. The Bible goes on to describe it as more than bad tasting. It's unfit for human consumption. So they call the place Mara because Mara means bitter. So verse 24 says, so they grumbled at Moses. Here's a word for you to become familiar with as you work through E2E, especially in the wilderness journeys. This particular word that's in your notes this morning, this Hebrew word that you see on the screen, this word loon, it's not a derivative of the word lunatic. That, that's from lunar. But loon here... It's talking about something in a really, really bad sense to be obstinate. Now, just hear me out on this. If you call someone a loon, you're essentially calling that individual to be a complainer who holds a grudge. You have anybody like that in your life? Don't look at them right now. <laughs> Keep staring forward. I had somebody come to me after the first service who said, I don't know why, I just instinctively looked at my husband. And he turned to me and said, what's that about? Okay, do you have anybody like that? Think, think this way. What the Bible is describing here is someone 
who not only stops, that's the definition that it just gave, they stop and they stomp because they're that obstinate to say, I want what I want and I want it now. And until they get their way, they're going to whine and whine and whine. Reflect that against the context of this. Israel has every reason to believe that God can save them. They know God answers prayers. They know that He controls creation. They know that He has control over the water. And all they have to do is look up and see the pillar of cloud that's surrounding them to remind them that God's got their back. Now, on the other side, it's not wrong for them to approach Moses. He's God's chosen representative. The, the problem is the attitude, the attitude that they bring to the table. And to put it blunt, bluntly, they're whining. They're whining and they're bitter. Therefore, they're called loon. Context. One day, they're dancing on the beach, singing, God, you're so good. You're so good to us. And three days later, they're bordering on open rebellion. What would you call that? Spiritually, they're infants. That's exactly what the writer of Psalms said, Psalm 106.7. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea. So at this point, Israel is selfish, they're ungrateful, they're immature. And because that's true, it points to a much deeper problem. There's a brokenness in them. They have a really weak, immature faith, and they simply don't believe that God will take care of them. So they're not trusting His faithfulness. So it's like this. Well, sure, He delivered us from Pharaoh three days ago, but what have He done for us lately? How are you going to prove yourself to us? And make no mistake, that's exactly what's going on here. I'm convinced that the reason that Jesus gave us communion and baptism, specifically communion, is so that we would remember. The reason I'm convinced is because He said, remember, remember what I've done for you because our human nature is to forget. We constantly forget. Verse 25, then he, meaning Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree and threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. One major reason that God's people trust God with our difficulties is this right there in that statement. God can turn your bitter things into sweet things. Amen? That's what he does. But as for Moses, he doesn't have that capacity. Moses can't do anything to help them. In himself, there is no capacity to save God's people. So what does he do? When he's confronted with this really desperate need, are you noticing that he did not grumble? He didn't join them in complaining. He actually turns and he goes to God. He takes the problem right to the Lord. Moses often went to God for help, especially with these spiritual issues because he knows there's something going on in their heart. Now watch, when Moses prays, Moses prays specifically asking God for a solution, and how does God respond? God shows him a particular tree. Literally, the, in the Hebrew language, the tree means the wood. 
So God shows him the wood, and the word show is interpreted in the Hebrew language meaning to direct. So God directs Moses to this wood that apparently he had prepared in advance. In other words, a tree that God had caused to grow up as a seedling and for years to mature for this very moment in time to the day it would be needed. And how Moses takes it down, I don't know. Whether he cuts it down or they push it over, but he pushes this tree into the water and it purifies it. Now, if you're new to church or new to this story, you might be looking at that and thinking, that's really hard to imagine. Like, how does that work, that that would purify that piece of wood for a couple million people to give them enough drinking water? Here's how I would respond if that's your thought. The wood made the water pure because it's God's tree. It's a tree that He prepared. Did you know that God specializes in trees? Think in Genesis chapter 2, what's in the Garden of Eden? The tree of life. What's in the end of the book? Revelation 22, tree of life for the healing of the nations. What's in the middle? The tree that Jesus died on. God's pretty big on trees. God's pretty big on using trees for healing. And that's exactly what you see Him doing here. What is remarkable to me is not that God is able to change the water quality. He's got that well in hand. Here's what's remarkable to me, that he's willing to do it for a bunch of grouches. God's grace is so amazing. He even provides for whiners, and he doesn't mind doing it. Now, Moses is writing this as he's looking back over time, and he's telling you and I, God had to do something next, though. What God does next in this moment is because of their bad attitudes. So God's gonna lay down some requirements. Go with me to that. Chapter 15 now. There he made for them a statute and a regulation and he tested them. Charles Spurgeon said that this wilderness experience that these guys are having, this is like the university of their life. Let me show you the quote the way Spurgeon said it in 1880. Wilderness is the Oxford and the Cambridge for God's students. There they went to the university, and he taught and trained them, and they took their degree before they entered into the promised land. Well, this wilderness you, it has an entrance exam. And the entrance exam is God's own test, and God's test is for His own people. And He's commanding them that they're going to have to obey His law, which will become the absolute standard. Hear this, church. When God tests you, When He tests me, when He tests these individuals, it is not so that we will fail. Rather, the desire is that we would learn to obey Him. So what these commands actually do, these commands are going to reveal something. It reveals through their daily decisions the depth of their relationship to Him. Like, are they really committed to Him or are they not committed to Him? So the obedience test that they're about to take, that's a test of faith. The obedience in your life, how you obey God's word on you, is really a test of your commitment. That's why Jesus said to us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you really love me? Then do what I ask you to do. If you love me, you keep my commandments. Well, in Israel's case, God tells them there's going to be effects, both for good or for bad, based on their obedience. They're to listen what he said to do, and they're to do what he said to do. Watch. Verse 26, and he said, meaning God, 
If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I the Lord am your healer. What had God just done for them? He just healed the water. He took what was bitter and made it perfect. Pure water so that they can drink. I'm thinking there was no better pure water on the face of the earth than that water at that moment in time. But if you're new to the story, you might be looking at that and thinking, wait, I I thought these were God's own people. He's going to put them through the same thing He put the Egyptians through? He's not saying, if you do good, I'm going to bless you. He's saying, if you do bad, I'm going to put you through what the Egyptians went through. Why would that be true? Well, let's keep the context of what's going on here for this warning. What if you right now could be transported back in time a couple thousand years, actually about 3,500 years, and you became a spectator on the beach to what was taking place? Let's say you could see what's going on on the seashore. God, you're so good, and and you're watching millions of people praise God and celebrate. Could you possibly think in your mind watching those individuals do that? that they in three days could turn on God, that they should, could so totally forget the grace of God and engage in outright rebellion against Him? Well, here's a legitimate concern, church. This is a legitimate issue for the church today. We have a propensity to be moved by quality worship music, to be compelled by a well-prepared message, even to melt into tears when we hear powerful baptism stories, yet find ourselves only three days later being tested and tried to the degree that we become grumblers. It's possible for us to do all those things I just referred to and yet not have a committed heart toward God. The trials and the testing in the wilderness of our lives They reveal our true heart like nothing else. Hard times typically reveal the depth of what's really inside. So why does God allow these hard things to come? He does it for several reasons. First, in order that we would be humble enough to cry out for His rescue. Did did you notice that they never cried out to God, the group? They went to Moses and Moses prayed, prayed to God. That wasn't their first reaction. Their first reaction was to grumble. But Moses is a little more mature, he's a little further along, and so he went right to God. What's the second reason? Well, to purify us or sanctify us. That's what the wilderness is about. But here's a third reason. God wants to teach you endurance, perseverance. Look with me on the screen, James 1-2. Consider it all or pure, your translation might say, joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The the problems that we go into are absolutely meant to teach us that we should have absolute confidence in God's capacity, in His faithfulness, and that is absolutely true for legitimate believers, for people who really belong to God. But what about for individuals who are on the fence, or what about individuals who are not sure where they're at? Well, check it this way. If trials come into your life, if hard times come into your life, and it always, every single time, it disquiets you instead of humbling you, 
If deliverance in your life only produces a temporary impression and not a lasting change, you have to ask yourself, can, can it be true that I really belong to God if I never have peace in my life whatsoever? Well, in Israel's case, this complaining, bitter attitude is just beginning to reveal their true hearts. There's a reason that Paul wrote, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were laid low in the wilderness. Verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Transition over to chapter 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See, their perspective is totally screwed up. They're looking back on the very nation that enslaved them and saying, oh man, life was back there was good. We had so much food. We sat by pots of meat and we had bread to eat all day long as much as we wanted. And they're not properly remembering what happened there. Why grumble against Moses? He's simply the guy who led them there because of God's command. He, he didn't cause the circumstances, he's just the leader. Well, I've learned in a senior leadership role, I've been in it for a long, long time. I was in it 15 years at Youth Haven and, and eight years at Trinity and 15, 16 years here at New Hope. And I understand that senior leaders take a lot of criticism. It, it just goes with the territory. It's, it's what happens. Well, Moses is new to this. This is a new leadership role for him, but he knows there's something that's going on underneath. There's something deeper in their hearts. There's this underlying cynical discontent, and it's directed actually against God. So Moses has to call them out on this issue because he knows they're not really unhappy with him. He gives them a reality check and says, you're actually unhappy with God. Look with me. Verse 8 of chapter 16, your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Many of you know that I love some of these old dead theologians. And uh, Charles Simeon is one of those. I, I haven't brought him back in a long time. I want you to see what he wrote about this passage in 1836. It will be well for us to remember that inventing our wrath and indignation against the instruments by whom God at any time afflicts us, we vent it in reality against Him who uses them. And why should they murmur against God? Had He committed an oversight in leading them into that situation? Had He forgotten to be gracious? Was he so changed within the space of three days that he could no longer devise a way for their relief? Or was his ear become so heavy that he could not hear? Or his hand so shortened that he could not save? Should they not rather have concluded that now, as on many recent occasions, he had permitted their trial to be great in order that he might the more abundantly magnify his own power and mercy in their deliverance? And there it is. That's the real issue. Charles Simeon is saying exactly what Moses said. There's a willful neglect on the part of individuals to forget what God has done. And I mean it this way. 
a willful neglect because they cannot possibly have forgotten what God did at the Red Sea only three days earlier. How could that be possible? There's no way. We're still talking about it 3,500 years later. There's no way they forgot about that. What's really going on here? But this is nothing less than a demand that they would want God to prove Himself again. And that's exactly what Moses has to say to them. You find later in chapter 17, Moses goes right to the core of the issue with just these few words. Watch this. Verse 2, why do you test the Lord? Testing God involves withholding trust. When you're testing God, you're holding back. And it's requiring that God who has already proven himself capable and already proven himself faithful in the past, that he would prove himself once again. In other words, will he be sufficient for me now that the circumstances have changed? Like, God, I know you can part the Red Sea, but I don't know if you can handle this puddle of water that we need to drink out of. That's a really humbling thought because that's not actually much of a basis for a love relationship where one side is constantly manipulating the other side into feeling like they're walking on eggshells, constantly having to reprove their commitment over and over and over again. That's more of a trial friendship. That's not based on love. That's not a real relationship. And so the performance standard raises itself to say, you prove yourself to me and maybe then I'll determine whether or not we have a relationship. That's putting the grumbler in the driver's seat. So testing God, or your translation might say tempting God, are words that are used interchangeably in Scripture, depending on how old your translation is. Think of it this way. When Satan tempts Jesus, 40 days we're told that God's Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. And at the very end, when Satan tempts Jesus, one of the pinnacle tests is to take Jesus to a really, really, really high spot. And what does he say to him? Throw yourself off. See if you can kill yourself, Jesus. Because it's written that the angels have charge under you and they will catch you and they will hold you up. They will bear you on angels' wings. How does Jesus respond to Satan? Do not tempt the Lord your God. Why does Jesus respond that way? Because in other words, he's literally saying back to Satan, do not test me because God has no need to prove himself to you as though he's subject to you because that's making God secondary and making we primary. And that's a position of arrogance, not a position of humility. It's saying my relationship is conditional. You're subject to my approval. So grumbling is ultimately saying, I'm in charge here, not you. And based on my mood, I'll determine when things are good. So if we cut right to the chase with Israel, the problem at Marah is not the water. God can easily handle the water. The real problem is the bitterness of the heart. And the Bible's pretty clear. It is a sin to have a complaining spirit. First and foremost, because it poisons our relationship with Christ. But also, it poisons our relationship with other people. But ultimately, here's a huge issue. It robs us of our joy. So instead of looking for the good things, human nature is to look for the bad. And newsflash, 
the news media is really good at understanding that. They know human nature. And so they play on human nature and deliver bad news constantly. And they play on our nature to complain all the time and look for things that we should complain about. Lori and I, we actually back in January of this year had to reduce our television packages. We got rid of the news channels because I found that I was walking around with a bitter spirit, angry and feeding on that stuff. And I said to her, I'm going for the cheap stuff. And you know what? When you go for the cheapest of the cheapest of the cheapest of the packages, you lose the news channels. Why? Because those news channels make so much money. Well, I had to get it out of my life because it was carrying this weight on me, feeling like my joy had been robbed of me. That's a reality in my life, but here's something that's consistent for all of us. God said the opposite should be true of us, that he compels us to actually look for joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. You want to stand out in a crowd in 2023? Try wearing joy tomorrow to work. You will stand out, I promise you. Maybe you already do, but wear it more. It is not common. People are really, really angry. Scripture goes on to say in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So here's my thought. If you're lacking joy in your life, you're very likely lacking strength in your life. The Bible tells us what you're doing right now in walking with Jesus Christ is a race. You're in a long-term marathon. And so it requires endurance. Where do you get strength for that kind of endurance? Joy. Satan works overtime to rob us of our joy. He knows it renders us ineffective, and I get it. Life strips us of our joy. It's easy to find grumpy old men around. Get off my lawn, you kids! I get it. We've got a lot of baggage. We've gone through a lot of life circumstances. There's things that can make us unhappy. And it leaves us with a sour attitude. And we understand that grumbling and anger is extremely common. But what I've noticed is it's ramping up. It's especially exacerbated in the last 10 years. Let me show you something that Scripture says about why that's happening. 2 Timothy 3.1, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? If you're looking for a happy Sunday, that was last weekend. It's when we baptize everybody. This is heavy stuff, but it's a reality check. And Moses has just called these individuals out on this issue because he says the reality is you're angry with God. The reality is you've got an internal dissatisfaction. And I'm here to tell you this morning that unless you are rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, you will get sucked right into it. And you can join the complaining crowd because there's lots of them out there. So let me encourage you this week to do this. Let me encourage you to be deliberate about looking for high points. Maybe you need to turn off the news. Maybe you need to stop feeding on that stuff that's making you angry and bitter and start looking for reasons to praise God for what you do have. And let me begin here with just two tips before I wrap this up. First of all, 
If you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the highest point you could possibly ever have. He's got eternity waiting for you. He saved you of your sins. Jesus is the highest thing to praise God for. But next, if you want something more basic, you live in the United States of America. And for all of its faults, and it's got lots, it is the greatest place on this planet to live. It's phenomenal. There's a reason people are kicking down doors trying to get in here. Because they want to have what you have. It is a phenomenal place to live. And you have food. And you have water. We have lots of reasons to praise God. So the lesson this morning is really easy for us to apply. For a believer, for a true believer, it's important for you and I to know where we're at on the timeline of things. We haven't yet reached the promised land. We understand that. We haven't transitioned from grace to glory yet. Glory's coming, it's in the future. Right now, the church is living in the wilderness. And we're in this period of time between the first and the second coming. Jesus came once to deliver. He's coming again to lead us home. But in the meantime, we're on a long, difficult journey in which God is choosing to sanctify us. He's already sees you as holy because of Jesus, but He's making you more holy, Scripture would say, sanctified. We are still in the wilderness, and God sanctifies in the wilderness. So in Jesus, you are saved, but you may face some great difficulty yet this year, and for sure, before you enter into the promised land. But go out the door this morning remembering where your source of your joy is at. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Praise you, God. We praise you and thank you for the realities of Help us to check our own heart, to not get so consumed in the news affairs of this world that we neglect the greater calling you've placed upon us and the responsibility to be lights in the darkness. Father, I, I do ask that you help us to check ourselves that if we're not light, we have to ask ourselves why. But if you use us accordingly to what your word promises and we step into the workplace tomorrow or into our classrooms or into our home life, or even yet this afternoon, and, and we want to represent you well, we know that we have to be lights because we do live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So use us. Let us represent your kingdom in such a way that Jesus is glorified. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.